How do I go to church? I want you to think about that question for me. You can answer it really in a number of ways. You can answer it geographically. Hey, Kevin, how do I go to church? And I'd say, well, from my house, you pull out of the neighborhood and you take a left on Lake Street, you take a right on Lexington Street, and then it branches off toward Bacon, right? Karen, where are you? I think you come the same way to church, right? Yeah? And then you take a left on school and a right on exchange, and then you park in the library parking lot, right? That's how I get, get to church. Uh, you can also answer it externally, like, how do I go to church? I put on my Sunday best. Here's what I wear to church. And let me just stop and say, I, I praise God every week for a church in which I get to wear jeans. It's a gift from God. Yep, you can, you can praise God for that. If you want to wear a three-piece suit, no judgment, right? You want to wear a tie? Um, I wear a sports coat about twice a year to church, Christmas and Easter. Um, or you can answer that question in a deeper way which is what the psalm is aiming at today. How do I go to church? What's the attitude of my heart as I come to the assembly of believers? What am I thinking about? What am I expecting? What's the state of my soul? Now, those questions are fine. Geography is important. You have to know how to get here. What you wear, you know, less important. But what's really important for us to ask ourselves is what is the attitude of our heart as we worship as the gathered people of God? What are our minds and hearts drawn to and focused on as we come into this room this morning? That's what this passage is confronting us with. And this is an important question to ask because, I think you, you know this, it's possible to be in the right place geographically at the right time, but have the wrong understanding of why you're there. It's possible to be at the right place at the right time, but to have the wrong motives for being there. And so when that happens for us, we don't really understand, okay, what are we actually doing here? Why are we here? We miss something that God wants for us. We miss the the gladness, we miss the gratitude, and we miss the peace that God longs for us to have as we come together as the people of God. Now, if you haven't been able to tell already, this is going to be a sermon about the church. And a few weeks ago, we just spent four weeks talking about the church and church membership. So just a heads up, if you have questions about church membership, you can go on the website, listen to those sermons, four great sermons by Clint and Jeremy. We're really talking about something far more specific this morning. We're talking about why we're here, and why we come into a place like this once a week. Okay? And so what we're doing right now is really important. We know that. And it's kind of funny to say that, like, to a bunch of people who got up on a Sunday morning and actually came to church, and for me to tell you, hey, this is really important. You're like, Kevin, I, I understand this. That's why I'm here. Right? I, I get that. But again, we want to we dig a little deeper. We want to do heart surgery, if you will. And as we follow this psalm, we're following a pilgrim, a Jewish worshiper, who's going to a corporate worship gathering of the people of God in the Old Testament. And as we follow him along this journey, we're learning from him not only the value of public worship, what we're doing here, but we're, we're learning 
how we are to approach and value the, the gathering of worship. Okay? So it's about the how. And so the psalmist, which is King David, if you see that there in the superscription above verse 1, a song of ascents of David, he's laying out for us in three characteristics how we're to go to church. That's how we're going to walk through this passage. First, we see in verses 1 and 2 that we come with glad expectation. Then in verses 3 through 5, we see that we come with a unified gratitude. Then in verses 6 through 9, we see that we come with prayer for peace. And so, look with me at verse 1 down in your Bibles or on the screen. Verse 1 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. First thing we see, he approaches worship with, number one, glad expectation. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks... Maybe you'll, you'll notice a progression here from the previous two psalms. This is the third psalm of ascent in a series of 15 psalms that we're walking through this summer, starting in 120. And these short songs were actually hymns that were sung by Jewish worshipers as they would go up to Jerusalem for their pilgrimage three times a year for one of these major festivals. And if you go back and, and look, the first psalm of ascent, 120, really told us about a, a distressed worshiper. He's far away from home. Right? He misses his people far from Jerusalem. Then last week we saw the, the trials and difficulty that a, a worshiper faces on this journey. Just as we as Christians face trials and difficulties on this journey of life. So th that's what those first two psalms are. But when we get to Psalm 122 we see something that we really have never encountered before in the previous two psalms. An emotion that hasn't been there. The first verse says, I was glad. We haven't seen gladness so far. We've seen despair. We've seen struggle. We've seen hope in future gladness. But now, this pilgrim says, I was glad. He's joyful and he's delighted. Last month, my son Aiden turned five and we took him to his first Red Sox game. Maybe some of you remember that experience for you. yeah. And to say that he was excited would be an understatement. It's one of those things where if you, if you tell a kid you're doing something when they're really young, you can't tell them too early. Like, hey, next month we're going, because then it's every day. Is that tomorrow? Is that tomorrow? No. no. He was excited. He was pumped up. And, and not just about, the excitement wasn't just around being at Fenway or, or baseball. Really, the excitement as we started the journey to Fenway was, was in just getting there. Right? We, we went to the tea station, and we're, there's, there's a guy playing guitar there. He gets to ride on the train. We get off on the uh, Kenmore station on the Green Line, right? And we start walking over the Mass Pike on what is now called David Ortiz Bridge. Thank you, Big Poppy, number 34. And, and I'm pointing out to him the locks. You guys know what I'm talking about, the locks hanging on the fence, right? And he's looking around, and there's a smell of, of hot dogs and Italian sausage on the grill. And there's street performers, and everyone's wearing their Red Sox gear. And he's just eyes wide open, soaking it in. And we come down around the, the bridge, and that first street right there is Lansdowne Street. You guys know what I'm talking about? Many a home runs have been hit over there. And I knew, like, what, what are we coming up? Let me just ask you, what are we coming up against on Lansdowne, the back of the stadium? The Green Monster. Right? And so my, my wife, uh, this was smart, she pulls out her phone and she videos him. 
And we're saying, it's coming. Here it is. Here it is. And we come around, the t- and he sees the back of it. And he starts jumping up and down. There it is. Oh, it was, it was awesome. I just love it. Right? And you guys have experiences like that. You can think of your first time or maybe your child's first time at a sporting event or, or a park you loved or maybe going to see your favorite band. We all understand that. But what's so interesting to me is that when we look at the Bible, the closest thing we have to that experience is not a, a sporting event or some form of entertainment. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. But the closest thing we have to that is a worshiper attending a worship gathering. He is glad to go to the house of the Lord. The language here gives the idea of giddy laughter. How many of you in the parking lot this morning, no judgment here because I wasn't like this, were like, yes, 20 Exchange Street. Thank you, Terry. You were. Praise God for it. Yeah. But he is delighted to be with the people of God. Now, it's, it's important for us here to kind of take a step back and ask the question, okay, why was he delighted? So we've got to think about what would he have been anticipating as he worshipped at the tabernacle or the temple. This was written uh, by David. At the time, there was a, a, um, a t- the tabernacle, which was not the permanent temple. Later on, it was the more permanent temple. But either way, it was the gathering place for the people of God to worship. What would he have been expecting? And I just want to very briefly walk through three things. Because when we, when we see those, then we understand, okay, this is what he was looking forward to. Here's the first thing this pilgrim or a worshiper would have been expecting. First, he would have expected to hear the word of God taught. That's what he would have expected. One of the most important responsibilities of the priests is to teach the people the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 10. They would open the law of God and explain the words of God to the people of God. And you can see how important this is. If you look down, if you've got your Bible open, the chapter before the Psalms of Ascent starts is, is Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is 176 verses. And it is, it's a love poem about one thing, God's law. Right? Let me just read a few of these verses from Psalm 119. Here's how Jewish worshipers saw the word of God. 119.14 The way of your testimonies, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Meaning you could give me all the riches of the world and then you could put up the word of God and where is my delight? Right here. If you get a pay raise tomorrow, praise God for it. You can pray for that right now. It's fine. But if you get a pay raise tomorrow and then you study a chapter of the Bible tomorrow, what is more valuable in your soul? God's Word. Psalm 119.16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Psalm 119.35, lead me in the path of your commandments. Why? For I delight in it. The worshipers would have been marching up to the place of worship, longing to hear the Word of God taught and delighting in His Word. The question for us is, can we say that's our experience with the Word of God? Do we long for and delight for God's Word with that glad expectation that God's going to speak to us? It's not an old dead book. It's living and active, as the author of Hebrews tells us. Paul tells young Timothy that it's able to make us wise unto salvation. Therefore, we should approach it with glad, joyful expectation. And we have a privilege that these Jewish worshipers didn't. Listen, 
A Jewish worshiper didn't have a personal copy of God's word in their home. They could go home and study. This is why we are open-handed. Listen, I didn't say that earlier, but I'll say it now. If you don't have a Bible, the one under your chair is yours. Because every person needs the word of God in a language that they can understand. Why? Not because it's some ancient book with some interesting history in it, though it certainly is that. But because it is God's very word to us. So he, he would have come to, to the worship gathering longing for this. But it also means we should come to the gathering expecting to hear the word of God taught. You are, in a, in a sense, a, a check on the preacher. You should come hoping that whoever is opening the word that morning is not giving their wisdom or their opinions on what's happening in the world, but is simply opening God's word, reading it, explaining it, and applying it to your life. That's what preaching is. Read the word, explain the word, here's what it means for you. And, and listen, you need this, I need this. You are hearing words all throughout the week. Think about it this week. If you're paying attention to the news, you're hearing words about devastation from volcanoes erupting. You're hearing words of, of, of increasing death tolls far more than we thought in Puerto Rico. Those are hard words to hear. You're hearing about children being ripped from their families. Maybe you heard a word this week from a supposed friend or loved one that, that cut you and wounded you. Or you're hearing words from the enemies. His job is to preach lies to you. You're not good enough. God doesn't love you. You failed too much this week. You need to indulge in that sin. Listen, the world is preaching a thousand sermons all the time. And always these words are coming into our ears. So what do we need when we come here on a Sunday morning? We need God's word. We need God to speak and say, nope, all of those things, in the midst of all of that chaos, in the midst of all of those lies, there's a faithful God who loves you and He is speaking, not just has spoken, but is speaking to you today through His Word. You need to be refreshed by the Word of God. So we should approach the gathering with gladness. Right? We should expect to hear God's Word clearly explained. So my, my prayer for us is that we would come here expecting that. I, I get to hear the Word of God explained today. I should pray for the preacher. I should pray that it would be clear. I should pray for those who are in the assembly who may not believe this. And listen, just as an aside, I understand you may be here and saying, you know what, I don't even know if I believe the Bible. I understand that. Well, there's a great resource called Why Trust the Bible on the back table. It's free. It explains uh, all of those things really well. But if you're here and you, you follow Jesus, know that God's Word is for you. It's meant to refresh you. It's meant to correct you. It's meant to encourage you. And so we should come with glad expectation. He also expected, and this is very closely related, he expected to experience the presence of God. That caused gladness for him. When David wrote this, the tabernacle was in Jerusalem. And inside the tabernacle, which was this tent, the innermost part was the, tabern uh, was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're like me, before I got to Bible college, my, my knowledge of the Ark of the Covenant came from Indiana Jones. 
And you know what? It actually explains all you need to know. I went back and watched part of it this week. But uh, the top of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. And what that really was, it was the dwelling place of God on earth. It was the throne of God on earth. God's presence would descend on that place. Now, not everyone could go in there. In fact, only the high priest once a year could go in there. But as worshipers would approach, they would expect closeness with the presence of God. God is there. His word's going to be explained. He's speaking. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about how that presence fleshes out for us in a moment. But let's just say we can expect the presence of God when we gather as the people of God. And listen, it's far more electric than Fenway. right? It's far more exciting than an entertainment gathering. Why? Because the living God who spoke the world into existence, dwells among his people. That's what he expected. And then lastly, look at uh, uh, verse 1 again. He was glad because he was with the people of God. Notice what he says. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. We get the impression here that the progression of Psalm 120 and 121, that this pilgrim was alone on this, this pilgrimage. But all of a sudden, a group of fellow, fellow worshipers said, hey, why don't you come with us? And what did that do? That magnified his gladness, the fact that he wasn't alone. Listen, it's enough. I'm going to meet with God. I'm going to hear the word. But now I get to enjoy God with the people of God. That's what community does. It magnifies our gladness in God. This is why I've never seen anybody at Fenway just alone. Now, by the way, if that's you, I'm really sorry. That's totally fine. If you're like, I like to go to baseball games alone. But no, normally what happens? You want that shared experience with your friends and family. I can go and cheer, but I'd rather do it. I'd rather share this joy with those I love the most. And friends, the same is true when we gather as the people of God. We're together in this. We can expect to be united. Now, confession time, I lean, I lean towards introversion. So any introverts, in the, uh, this is like killing you, just I'm asking you this, right? A few, your hand, the introvert's hand's like right here. So there's a few. We can have like a meeting later where we'll stand in a circle and not make eye contact or talk, right? Yeah. Now, I, I'm an introvert. I love being alone with my Bible and my journal. And that's what a lot of people say. Kevin, are you saying that you can't be alone with God, like just you and God? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. That's that's very important part of spiritual growth. In fact, many of us probably with our busy schedules, we need more of that. We need more time in personal communion with God. But at the same time, if we look at Scripture, we see God's design was never that we should be alone. It's never been just us and Him. It's always been the people of God coming together. Why? Because we're created in God's image. And God himself is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He is a community. And he created us to long for that as well. So you don't just need the word of God this morning. You need the word of God together. You you need one another. As you get beat down from this broken world, you need to show up and see, wait, Wait a second, I'm not the only one. You know how encouraging it is when we were singing that first song? I love that song, Oh Praise the Name, Anastasius. To to sit there and think about my sin and my brokenness 
Right? And then to go into a confession time and, th- and confess silently while I'm sitting there with my son, like the, s- the sins that I've committed this week. You know how encouraging it is to stop and realize, like, you know what? I'm not the only one. I look around me and I see brothers and sisters in Christ who also are broken and beaten down by this world, who also are confessing their sins, who also are singing the same gospel that I'm singing. That's what we need. The worship gathering's not just vertical, us and God. It's also horizontal. It's not just about me and God. It's us together as a family worshiping God. Gladness in God is a community project. And so, ask yourselves that question. Do I come to the gathering with glad expectation that I'm going to hear God's word, that I'm going to encounter his presence as the unified people of God? And that leads us, leads us to the second characteristic as he approaches worship. Number one, we see that he comes with glad expectation. And then number two, he comes with unified gratitude. So he continues on this theme of togetherness. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. He says, Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. Verse 4, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Now, David's actually talking about the the landscape of Jerusalem here. He says, Jerusalem is bound firmly together. That's just a good description of a city that was very compact. Houses were very close together. It was a a cozy place to live. But he's, he's using a play on words here. The word for bound sounds very similar in the Hebrew language to the word companion. So in other words, he's saying the physical closeness of the city is meant to represent the spiritual unity of the tribes of Israel. Not only are we together like we're shoulder to shoulder, we don't have a yard, and there's your house right there and my house right here. We are bound firmly together as God's people. Now, at this point, I think we have to consider a question you may or may not be asking. We're 3,000 years removed from this. So, so what does all this stuff about taking a trip as a Jewish person to a place that doesn't exist anymore, temple or tabernacle, what does all of this have to, have to do with us? After all, here we are on the other side of the world. We're in Waltham in a multi-purpose room in a boys and girls club in 2018. What does it have to do with us? That's a great question. Thank you for asking. The, the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament were the dwelling places of God among His people. That's what they were. That's where they would encounter His presence. But they were never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to be a place where people for all time would come and encounter the presence of God. The temple and the tabernacle were pointing to a time when God's presence would dwell among God's people in a different way. And the fulfillment of those things, the temple and the tabernacle, is not in a place, it's not in a geographical location in a certain part of the world, or it's not in a building, it's in a person. All of those things were pointing to the presence of God that were coming, that was coming in Jesus Christ. So when we get to the New Testament, we read passages like this in John 1.14. Maybe you've heard this passage before, usually read around Christmas time, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt 
You could literally say, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or Jesus himself in John 2, 19, as he's talking to religious leaders, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews had said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus is saying all of those things had a purpose. They had a time, but they're pointing to something better. If you want to encounter the presence of God, you don't go to a place. You go to a person. Go to Jesus. Do you you want the presence of God? Do you want salvation? Do you want glad expectation? You don't go to a priest to find it. You don't go to a a certain city to find it. You don't go to a building to find it. Listen, you don't find it in your career. You don't find it in money. You don't find it in power. You don't find it in sex or any of those things. If you want the satisfying presence of God, you go to Jesus in faith. You look to Christ, God in flesh, tabernacled among us. This is is why He came. He came to live a sinless life that you and I could never live and die a sinner's death, though innocent, that we deserved to die. And He was raised to life so that all who would believe in Him would have what? Complete and total, unhindered access to the presence of God. So, that's where the tabernacle and temple find their fulfillment. Okay, so if that's true, what about Jerusalem? Bear with me for a minute. I know this is kind of like weighty stuff, but it's really important. What about Jerusalem? What does it represent for us? One scholar, Derek Kidner, puts it this way. What Jerusalem was to the Israelite, the church is to the Christian. So believers in Christ all over the world gather together around Jesus We are the city of God. In 1630, a man named John Winthrop, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, was on the ship Arbella, and he was with his English colonists, Puritans, as they approached New England. And on this ship, he gave this famous sermon. Maybe you've studied it in school or heard it before. It's his famous City on a Hill speech. How many of you have referenced that? It's where Boston gets the nickname City on a Hill. Maybe you've heard it before. And what he said was, we shall be, this new colony, we shall be a city on a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Now, we're not going to get into the politics of how that works out, right? Whether he was right and wrong or what he was anticipating. But it's interesting because that stuck. And all throughout history, presidential history, people like JFK quoted Winthrop. Ronald Reagan, Mitt Romney, Barack Obama. But these weren't Winthrop's words. These were Jesus' words to a group of Jews who were sitting and hearing him preach in a countryside mountain in Matthew 5.14. He said, you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Who was he talking to? You who believe in me, you who are my disciples, you'll be a city on a hill. And they were hearing this thinking, wait a second, city on a hill, that's 80 miles south in Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, no, you as God's people will be 
this light to the world. So we who believe in Christ, the church, and I don't just mean this local body, but all believers throughout all history who have trusted in Christ, we are the city on a hill and we are united tightly together around the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Now, with that in mind, read verse 3 again. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together. And look again at verse 4. Israel was one nation with many different tribes, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. All of these different tribes in Israel were coming together around one purpose, to worship. Do you ever stop and think about like, just the diversity represented in this room? And just say, would, would we even be friends if it weren't for Seven Mile Waltham? Don't answer that like out loud now, but it's an interesting question, isn't it? You have people from all different backgrounds, all different jobs, all different pay grades, all different accents. Some of ours are funnier than others, right? All different hobbies. Most groups gather around in affinity. Oh, we have this in common. This is our shared interest. This is our shared age group. So let's get together and, and do something. That's great. There's a place for that. But friends, that's not the church. We gather together not because we're the same age or we look the same or we're for the same place or we have the same hobbies. We gather together not around those common interests but around a common Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the uniting factor in the people of God. We can be true friends in this room, true brothers and sisters who deeply love one another, serve one another, are deeply involved in one another's lives. Why? Because we all have one thing in common. We're broken and we needed a Savior and Christ is that Savior. Christ is the uniting factor for us. And you see this, this unified people of God. And what does that do? That lays the, the groundwork for gratitude. What's our response? Look at the end of verse 4. Why did they come? They came to do one primary thing. We're here to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Are you thankful as you gather this morning? I was talking to someone before about just how God had worked in their life this week. And she just said, I'm so thankful for what God has done. Are you thankful as the people of God? Now, listen, I'll be honest. Gratitude is hard for me. Gratitude's difficult for, for a number of reasons. I think there are two reasons why it's difficult for us. First, some of us are so worn out by the hardships of life, by what's going on, that you, you hear that and you say, really, tell me to be thankful? I, I don't know that I have anything to be thankful for. You have no idea what my life is like right now. But then there's another group who hears that and they think, okay, all the good things in my life are my doing. I don't need to thank anybody. I worked hard. I earned that paycheck. I provided for this family. I built this business. Right? So both pride or both self-reliance and self-pity keep us from being thankful to God for what he's done. And so just I want to do an exercise real quick, a collective exercise. Let's do this together. Let's just crush our pride with some truths from Scripture that remind us all that we have to be thankful for. Whether you're here this morning and you're relying on yourself, that's why you're not thanking God. Or whether you're here this morning and, and you're struggling with self-pity and so you're blinded to the goodness of God in your life. Listen to these 
promises. It's just meant to cultivate a unified gratitude in us. Here's the first one. You're not condemned. Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second, God loves you. Psalm 136 repeats this refrain 26 times. His steadfast love endures forever. God provides, Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God promises your future. Revelation 21.4, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Here's a good one. You're awake right now. I hope. Some of you might be dozing. You're awake. Psalm 3. I lay down and slept. I woke again. Why? For the Lord sustained me. It's a reason to thank God. And lastly, one that sums it all up. Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In other words, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. We have endless reasons to be thankful and, and grateful to God this morning as God's people, don't we? Here's how one pastor puts it, Scotty Smith. He says, marinate in this. Our guilt is gone and shame is shattered. We're rooted in God's love and standing in His grace, clothed in Christ's righteousness and resting in His forgiveness, sealed by the Spirit and children of the Father's delight, having a living hope now and a glorious future forever. We lack nothing if we're in Christ. So much to be thankful for. So let's come into this place. Thinking on those things, knowing that we are together as God's people and we're to respond with gratitude. And then lastly, we see that we're to come with prayer for peace. Look at verses 6 through 9. David changes gears here a little bit and calls us to prayer. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now, I worked really hard to have a G here so I could have gladness, gratitude, and like gentleness. Um, but King David does not care about alliteration. So I found that out this week. And he's dead set on, if you were listening, what's he dead set on? One thing, peace. He wants us to get this idea of shalom. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And here's what's interesting. We see the word peace countless times in the English language, but the word Jerusalem actually means habitation of peace. And the word for prosperity here or security is a word that sounds very similar to peace. So what, what David is really saying is because of who you are, because you, God's people, are the habitation of peace, may you live in such a way that is peaceful. That's the prayer. Action flows from identity. May we be who God has called us to be. And he's not just praying for peace. When we think of peace, we think absence of, absence of conflict. But this word shalom means far much more than that. It means, it means wholeness. It means flourishing. Pray for the flourishing of God's people. If we want to see both Seven Mile Road and the church at large around the world flourish, we have to be people of prayer. We've got to be committed 
to pleading on our knees for God to move and work and advance his gospel. Why? Think about it. The task of the church is an impossible one. We're supposed to be a countercultural people from all different tribes, nations, people groups, interests, backgrounds. And we're supposed to be in a tight-knit community together in such a way that displays Jesus to the world. That's crazy. What happens when you put a bunch of different people in a room together for a long period of time? It doesn't, I'll tell you, it doesn't lean towards peace. I've got five kids. You can come to my house later and we can do a social experiment. <laughs> Conflict happens, right? Yet here we are. We're supposed to be this countercultural community of peace. That is a miracle. Therefore, we must ask God to unite us around his gospel, to help us to flourish. Not only that, think of what, we're, we're, what else we're called to do. We're supposed to, and I don't, I don't mean to be disrespectful or sacrilegious here. I just want you to think about it, maybe from an outsider's perspective. Maybe you've had these questions before. Our task is to go into the world and tell a message about a Jewish man from 200 years ago who was both fully man, like us, but at the same time, fully God. And he lived a sinless life. And was killed on a cross, but he didn't just die like everyone else killed on a cross. That actually paid for the sins of mankind. Oh, but by the way, he didn't stay dead. He rose from a grave, hung out for 40 days, and then floated up to a throne in heaven where he now seats and rules over all of us. That's our message. That is foolishness to the world. And we're supposed to go out into the world, tell people that message. And here's what, I love this. We're supposed to expect people to respond and say, I want that. That's a miracle. You can't logically convince people of those things on your own accord. Yet here we are, right? Here we are. Many of us have repented and believed that same message and we say amen to that. It's a foolish message to this world. So if we want to expect the church to flourish with that message, we say, this, is a miracle. this requires a miracle, therefore we must pray. We must come together and pray for God's gospel to advance. Because here's the alternative. The alternative is that we become reliant upon ourselves. We can do a lot in our own strength, right? One pastor from China came over here. He was in a persecuted church situation, toured a bunch of churches and was asked at the end of his trip here, what do you think of spirituality in the, in the American church? And his response was, it's amazing how much the American church can do without the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, I don't want that to be said of me. I don't want that to be said of us. We want people to say, here's a spirit-empowered family of servant missionaries who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples. They're glad to be together as the people of God. They're grateful, and they aim for peace. Right? And he goes on. I'm running out of time, so I'll just wrap it up here. He prays for peace with, from within. Verse 7a, within your walls, meaning as the people of God, but also at the end of that verse, security within your towers, peace from without. That though, as we experience, we're told the world will hate us, but God... God's given us a privilege in this country right now to speak freely. We don't have to worry about being arrested for doing what we're doing right now. We don't have to worry about someone shutting us down for coming together and opening the Word of God like many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world do. And then look at verse 9. Look how he ends. I love this. Prayer 
never ends with us just sitting complacently on our hands. Verse 9, for the sake of the house of the Lord, not only will I pray, I will seek your good. David's prayer leads to devotion, to seek the good of the church. He's not just sitting at home, oh, I'll pray for you. He's actively involved as the people of God. Friends, this is what God has called us to. To come into this gathering each week with glad expectation as we encountered Him. With this, this unified gratitude for all that He has done for us. And prayerfully seeking peace with one another. As we wait for Him to come again. And in closing, listen, there's not going to be perfect peace for us in this life. There's not going to be perfect peace in the church. There's not going to be perfect peace in this church. There will be conflict. But we have this future hope of this coming day when we'll experience gladness, gratitude, and peace to the fullest. And that's what we're rehearsing for each Sunday when we gather here. We are rehearsing for heaven. Why do we sing? Because in heaven we'll have ceaseless joy and praise of God. Why? Do we pray? Because in heaven we'll have full, unhindered relationship and communion with God. Why do we open the word? Because God will speak to us. Why do we come to the table as we're about to in a minute? Because heaven is described as a feast. A room filled with neighbors from all different nations, tribes, and people groups, and socioeconomic backgrounds. We aim for that here because we're rehearsing for what we'll experience there. And what a hope that brings us. Because that's what heaven will be. Then our prayer is that we would be bound together now, not by these common interests, but by our common Savior, Jesus Christ.